Amen. Praise the Lord. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. Yeah, we can praise the Lord. We can clap a hand, right? We can have, clap our hands to God's glory. It's good to be in his sanctuary. If you have your Bibles, meet me in Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, when you get there, say amen. <laughs> and if you're not going to get there, say go on without me. I'll start at verse number 1, even though I'll be focusing on verses 5 through 8. Can we stand for the reading of God's Word? Can we do that? Can we just stand for God's Word and read God's Word together? This is how they did it back in the Old Testament. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. You may be seated. Father, we thank you, Lord God, for your word. It is living and powerful and sharper than a double-edged sword. Even though I have prepared, I need your Holy Spirit, to speak through me. In such a way, God, that your people will hear your words and not minds. There's someone here that does not know you as Lord and Savior, that today will be the day of salvation. Open our hearts even now to your word. In Jesus' name. And everyone say amen. It will not die easily. He is like brother man on Martin Lawrence who shows up in the most awkward times. He breaks into your house through your window. You'll find him inside your refrigerator constantly indulging every delight. He pops up surfing the internet for hours. There he is looking constantly with lust secretly desiring what belongs to others, never content with his own stuff, got to have more and more to satisfy his cravings, greedy for gain. You will find him tempted to push the boundaries, to see how far he could go and not get caught. The consequences really don't matter to him. He is so heavy with sin that he gravitates downward toward anything that is sensual. He is indifferent towards spiritual matters, any spiritual activities. 
You will not find him reading the Bible or praying to God or fellowshipping with God's people. If anything, he's resisting God's spirit and wants nothing to do with Jesus. He is the enemy of the spirit and the cross. He thrives when you feed him, nurture him, pamper him with worldly delights. If you feed him enough, he will become your kryptonite. He fights dirty in conflict. I win, you lose. Always constantly at war with God. He easily stews over past hurts, brings others into his bitterness, blows a fuse over pettiness, careless about holy living, feeds off gossip instead of interceding. Do you see him? Do you know who he is? He never takes a sabbatical. He's invisible like carbon monoxide. But you can detect him with a smell. It's the smell of flesh. He is still wearing grave clothes with a stench of death. He delights in holding you down in bondage and deceiving your heart, captivating your mind away from Christ. Who is he? And although he is present in his power, his power has been stripped away. He is, you're no longer obligated to submit to his demands. Yet, he can overpower you and crush you if you let him. But he waits for your permission. Do you know who I'm talking about? Paul refers to this foe as the old self, the old man, the enemy within each and every one of us. That part of us that was crucified with Christ and buried with Christ. Paul identifies that old self as dead weight in Romans chapter 8. It is our sinful nature. And if you and I are going to pursue holy living in Christ, is my point, you have to get rid of the old self. If we're going to pursue holy living in Christ, we have to get rid of the old self. And although I'm focusing on verses 5 through 8, it's necessary for us to understand verses 1 through 4. Let me read the text again. Since then, or if since then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above and not on things that are on the earth. Why? For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. Key verse. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. 
On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Paul says, put it to death. Paul is not suggesting that believers believers are somehow living in the clouds with their heads in the clouds, with their their minds and heads buried in the sand. No. Rather, he says, set your mind on Christ, on the things above, results in practical obedience. It results in pursuit of holiness at home, at work, at church, and in the world. Have you ever heard of the saying, he is so heavenly minded that he is no earthly good? Actually, the opposite is true. You really can't be earthly good without being heavenly minded. I'm convinced that a believer is truly heavenly minded will be of maximum earthly use. You see, the call to holiness in Christ is not a call to unhappiness or drudgery. Amen? In fact, just the opposite is true. The Apostle Paul said earlier, In chapter 2, therefore, just as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. It's not drudgery. Christians ought to be the happiest people on earth, the most joyful people on earth because of who we know. J.I. Packer shows us a union between happiness and holiness and saying that the way to be truly happy is to be truly human, not detached from the earth and the world, but to be truly human. And he said to be truly human is to be truly godly. That was the original state of Adam and Eve before they fell into sin. So how do we become godly in the midst of godlessness? How do we pursue holiness when sin is so pervasive and temptation is so common? How do we become heavenly minded enough to become earthly good? How do I keep my mind stayed on Christ and keep my heart with all diligence for out of it flows the issues of life? How do I do that? Thank you for asking. Paul tells us as believers you have to do two things. Before you put on, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, etc., you must first put to death your sensual sins or the sensual sins, verses 5 through 6. Secondly, we must put to death or put off the social sins, verses 8 through 9. Notice here that Paul targets two sets of sins here. The first set of sins are the sins of the flesh. And the second set of sins are the sins of one's spirit. In other words, the first set of sins has a whole lot to do with your body or your fleshly urges, your sensual delights. The second set of sins deals with your inner spirit or attitude. We call these social sins. Before we even think about slaying that enemy, that old self within us, I really do need to qualify T 
two assumptions about this text. One, number one, you cannot, I cannot do any of what I'm about to share with you if you are not in Christ. You cannot do any of this if you're not in Christ. That's the first assumption. Even if you succeed at any of this, you will fall into legalism and it will crush you. Two, even if you are in Christ, you cannot overcome your flesh with your flesh. No amount of willpower on my part or your part or self-discipline will do it. You and I are no match for our fleshly desires. Paul said it earlier in chapter 2. He says, he tells us that self-made religion is of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. See, we assume, based on Paul's collective teaching on this subject, you can only conquer your flesh by keeping in step with the Spirit of God through the grace of God. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, But I say then, walk in the Spirit, that you will not carry out the desires of your sinful nature. Now that I laid the foundation, let's dive in. Number one, we must put to death the sensual sins. Verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality. Put to death, mortify, execute. The Apostle Paul is not trying to be gory here, but trying to express to us the gravity of sin and its interference with Christ living his life through us. The Apostle is not just simply going through the motions here. He's saying, mortify what's earthly in you. That's the Greek word necro, to subdue and to deaden. To bring your flesh under total submission and even deaden its ability to influence you. The Greek tense in this command suggests a decisive action. Paul said, mortify it. Do it now. Do it resolutely. And of course, Christ has already done it when he died on the cross. But we must count it done daily. That's the mental fight that we're in right now. The Puritan theologian John Owen once wrote, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. It sounds like bad English, but that's old English in good theology. <laughs> Sam Storm said that there's only two options when it comes to dealing with sin. You are either reckless or you're ruthless. There is no middle ground. To opt for some third possibility itself is a reckless choice. Either we are ruthless in our commitment and efforts to kill sin, lest it be killing us, or we are reckless by default. One doesn't have to make deliberate choices to commit specific sins to be reckless, no. All one has to do is fail to take calculated and precise steps to avoid temptation. Flee sin at first sight and treat sin as your mortal foe. Not to do so is reckless. And the definition of reckless is to be careless of the consequences. 
You see, in our day and time, the word sin is played out. Sin is not so popular or politically correct to tell people that they're in sin. Call it a mistake or nature or a disorder or bad habits, but not sin. And in response, Storms points out, it comes to us as no surprise then that people feel free to toy with sin and to tease it and to pet it and are careless and indifferent toward its devastating effects. They regard it as inconsequential, secondary, something to be tasted and tested. But the Apostle Paul said, he reminds us to mortify it. Don't let it live any longer in your members. But what are we putting to death, Paul? Those things that appeal to the lusts of the flesh, such as sexual immorality. Put to death which is, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality. Notice how sexual immorality is at the top of Paul's hit list. The word in Greek is the word pornonia. You're very familiar with that word. In fact, that's where we get the word fornication. It, fornication actually means fulfilling your desire outside of God's design. Esau was considered a fornicator, but it didn't have sexual connotations. So it was a more of a broader type definition. The pornonia is also where we get the word pornography, which, by the way, is very dangerous if you're dabbling with that. Pornonia includes adultery and engaging in sexual activity outside of the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. God made sex to be beautiful and good and holy within the confines of marriage. But Satan has so perverted it and twisted it and parades it outside of that covenant. Sexual immorality was such a problem even in Paul's day that some of it began to spill over into the Corinthian church. Paul had to write 1 Corinthians to address it. There was scandal in the church. There's a report of a man sleeping with his mother-in-law. Wow. And notice what Paul writes here when he writes this letter. Listen to these words. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. First Corinthians chapter 5 verse 1. And of the kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, that a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from your midst. You see, Paul is, is not missing with his words here. Paul doesn't play when addressing pornonia because he knows how devastating it is working its way through the body of Christ, defiling its members like cancer. Paul is saying, you have to be ruthless with this thing. It, it will wreck your life. We live in an oversex culture. The per perversion of sex everywhere. You go to the gross grocery shop and you see it on magazine, magazine racks, soft pornographic material. 
when you go home and see commercials and movies and reality TV, TV shows. Bookstores are all laced with sexual innuendos, some more aggressive than others. Why? Because sex outside of the covenant marriage sells, and unfortunately, so many people buy into it, even if it costs them their lives. Fornication destroys families. Millions of babies are being aborted every year. STDs are running rapid. Relationships broken. I once saw a billboard some time ago with a half-dressed woman in a champagne glass advertising the TV show Sex in the City. Big, bold letters that said, it's my business to do pleasure with you. I said, wow, so bold and in your face. The scriptures tell us that Satan prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone whom he may devour. Be sober-minded. For those of us who are single, even watching online, maybe you have asked the question, how far is too far? Or maybe even some single or married folks might be asking that question. How much can I get away with? And if you have to ask yourself, if you have asked yourself that question, you have already gone too far. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. When Paul tells us to kill it, don't play with it, don't cuddle it. He understands the heart of Jesus' words to his disciples in Matthew chapter 5, verse 29. Even our Lord tells us to deal ruthlessly with sin. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Whoa. For it is better that you lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. And of course, Jesus is not, does not mean this literally. He's not talking about physically Maiming your body, no, nor is Paul saying that, killing your body. That's, that's not what Paul's saying, is saying either. He is saying you ought to be, be so serious and take such serious measures when it comes to stopping the very thing that's taking your heart away from Christ. That's what he's saying here. And if you're not willing to cut the main artery to this sin, you might have to ask yourself, a serious question. Are you in Christ? I'm not talking about sinless perfection here. I'm talking about victory even in the midst of your struggle. Are you struggling forward to not swimming backwards in it? If you have no conviction whatsoever and no desire to cut the main artery to this sin, the question is, are you in him? Challenge yourself to ask that question. Yes, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Yes, God is the one making us holy, and yet we must cooperate with him through his Holy Spirit by doing what the Apostle Paul commands. We don't have the luxury of sitting and waiting for a miracle in this area. We don't. Paul reminds us yet again to be ruthless with sin in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Verse 17, 
But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But sexual immorality or a sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Glorify God in your body. Or as John Piper puts it, when it comes to killing my sin, I don't wait passively for the miracle of sin killing to be worked on me. I act the miracle. Joseph had to act the miracle. He ran out of Potiphar's presence. Not only do we put to death pornonia, but we also must put to death the second sin on this hit list, impurity. You see, even though I don't struggle with that particular one, you, but this Second one is related to the first one, but more subtle and overt in his manifestation. You don't fornicate, but you battle with, with lustful looking, seeing that the grass is greener on the other side, but it's always brown. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, Whosoever look with lust after a woman in his heart has already committed adultery with her. She is really hard to to see and hear from God when, when we're dabbling in this sin. It's hard to press our way into God's presence when we're struggling with the sin of impurity. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, he who has not lifted up his soul to an idol nor sworn deceitfully. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You see, when we practice purity through the Spirit, we keep open channels of communication, intimate communication between us and God. And if you're getting low bars when it comes to your communication with God, like your phone has low bars, you may have to check the tower of your communication with God. Paul gives us the rundown on those outside of Christ and how they indulge in sin. He says, having lost all sensitivity... They have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 19. If left unchecked, lust or impurity most certainly will lead to passion here. The third pervasive sin of the old self is passion. That is the Greek word pathos. You may be familiar with that word pathogens or pathological. It is uncontrollable passion. It is when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is foregrown, it gives birth to death. Paul said it's better to marry than to burn in passion. It is not God's will for us to live in passionate lust like the heathens who do not know God. You see, and when lust is out of control, running rampant, the next sin appears, evil desire. Evil desire is a manifestation of our sin nature. That which controls us deep down, that which controls our carnality. You see, I am mortifying also that which appeals to the lust of my eyes. Not just the lust of my flesh, but the lust of my eyes here. And that leads to the the next one, covetousness. Covetousness, it means an inappropriate desire for having more. 
at the heart of it is ruthless greed for more instead of contentment. Covetousness is the last commandment on God's top ten list. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, nor covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant or female servant, or his ox or donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. You see, this is a sin that can make us break all the other nine commandments. A covetous person will dishonor God, take God's name in vain, lie, steal, and commit every other sin in order to satisfy his sinful desires. You see, I really believe that we come into this world with a nature bent on covetousness, whether we choose to acknowledge it or not. Have you ever noticed when toddlers began to interact and play with each other in their playpen? You know the scene, toys are everywhere. It's a semi-war zone with booby traps, tripping hazards everywhere. And none of those toys lying there hold any value to these kids until the moment Hannah, until the moment Hannah's younger brother Judah picks up a toy and suddenly the value of that toy goes through the roof. And before you know it, she's going to do what she can and what she must to get to that toy and take it from him. And we're trying to teach them that sharing is caring. So what she does every time she takes one of his toys, she says, share, share. And he looks at her defenseless and vulnerable and can't do anything because he can't walk. But in another two months, he's going to be walking. He's going to go and take his toy back. I promise you that. You see, <laughs> there's a deep fibrous root in the human heart. Covetousness. Jacob coveted his brother's birthright. Esau was so hungry, he got greedy and sold his birthright to his brother Jacob in exchange for a bowl of soup. Sin will make you do some very stupid things. I've been there, done that, got the T-shirt. You want this thing so bad that you're willing to give anything to get it. David, a, a married man after God's own heart, wanted Bathsheba, his soldier's wife. But he wasn't thinking about the consequences that follow. No. I truly believe that sin will tell you where you get on at, but it will never tell you where you get off at. You can choose your sin, but you can never choose your consequences. Did you hear about the story of the elderly lady who heard on the news about a car driving in the wrong direction on the interstate? She was so worried that her husband might be in danger, so she called him on his cell phone to warn him. Claude, you need to be extra careful coming home. The news just said there's a crazy person driving the wrong way on the interstate. He said, Ethel, it's not just one, it's all of them. See, the first step in pursuing God's agenda for your life and getting rid of the old self is realizing that you're headed in the wrong direction and to stop and to turn around. That's called repentance, metanoia, to change your mind. If you're going to get ruthless about your sin, you, it has to start with repentance. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out 
that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, Acts chapter 3, verse 19. The bottom line is, the bottom line is, the root of covetousness is idolatry here. It says, which is idolatry. It is more than bowing down to an image. Tim Keller defines covetousness as anything or idolatry as anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything that you seek to give you what only God can give. That's idolatry. Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods, talks about what it will take to replace the idols of our hearts. I once heard that the greatest idol factory in the world is the human heart. We make an idol out of everything, even good things. He argues how we are to replace those idols in our hearts. He says that setting our mind and heart on things above where your life is hidden with Christ and God means appreciation, rejoicing, resting in what Jesus has done for you. It entails, it entails joyful worship, a sense of God's reality in prayer. Jesus must become more beautiful to your imagination, more attractive to your heart than your idol. That is what will replace your counterfeit gods. And here's the key point he makes. And if you uproot the idol and fail to plant in the love of Christ in his place, the idol will grow back just like a weed. That's why Paul says, get rid of these devices, but put on Christ-centered virtues. We're getting rid of the old self. He says, for on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. He says the reason we need to get rid of these things is because God's wrath is coming. And the fact of the matter is, God's wrath is coming upon all sinners caught up in these sins because God does not wink at sin, nor does he turn a blind eye to it, because he is holy and perfectly just and must punish sin. My friend, listen to me. His fury will be unleashed on all those who reject Christ and who rather maintain their practice of these things, these sins. This might be hard medicine to swallow, but our commitment to faithful biblical exegesis doesn't allow me to skip over anything. In fact, I have been assigned this passage. I didn't choose it. My flesh probably resisted initially. But if you find yourself in this situation right now where you can't shake any of these sins, where you feel powerless to shake any of these sins, and you have not cut off the main artery to these sins or that old self, and you never come to know Christ as your Savior, today is the day of salvation. I proclaim Christ to you today. The moment you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Not only must we put to death the sensual or the sexual sins of our fleshy nature, but number two, we must also put off the social sins. Seems like these set of sins don't get much press nowadays as the first list of sins. For he says here, 
But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. These are the sins of the emotion and attitude. What you will notice here is how one sin feeds into the other. The first one on the hit list here is the word anger, or the Greek word is orge. It is movement or agitation of the soul, impulse, a desire, any violent emotion, or it can lead to a violent emotion. There's an appropriate time for anger. The scripture says, be angry and do not sin. Anger is a natural emotion. Yet anger is symptomatic of something much deeper. And when a person refuses to handle anger in a healthy way, it leads to passive aggressiveness or sarcasm. I know, been there, done that, got the t-shirt. It's true for me. A man said that, once said that, my wife and I promise that we will never go to bed angry. And then he says, we haven't slept together in seven years. Interesting. I'm reminded of Solomon's wise words in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 32. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. You are a warrior when you don't collapse to your anger. If anger is not carefully addressed, it could lead to the next social sin on the hit list here, and that is wrath. The word thumos. Wrath is where anger begins to boil over. That's when your blood pressure increases and your body temperature flares up. You find yourself moving impetuously like the wind, a violent motion. Your passions take over your critical thinking. And this is where anger becomes indignation. Wrath is acting without thinking. Wrath is the outburst of anger here. This is where you end up blowing a fuse. Been there, done that, got the t-shirt. I believe I will testify. Paul encourages us to be angry and do not sin. Be angry. Don't let the sun go down your wrath. Neither give place to the devil. I'm learning that a soft answer turns away wrath. And if your wrath is boiling inside you, you might be dealing with an issue of unresolved hurt and unforgiveness. And I realize that hurt people hurt people and hurt people are hurt by hurt people. Pastor Rick Warren elaborates. He says, when you refuse to forgive, you allow those who hurt you to live in your mind rent-free. Bitterness, resentment, animosity, anger, wrath takes over. These are all squatters that take up residence in your heart and mind. Then they file an adverse possession claim to try to stay in your mind, occupying precious real estate against your true desire for peace. And then you find yourself in a weird place spiritually, emotionally, and mentally. Remember these words from the Apostle Paul, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all people. Never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. The Lord says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Don't let unforgiveness ruin you. If you are angry and have not addressed it, if you're stewing over past hurts, it can boil over 
into wrath and then lead to malice. It is an evil habit of mind, Stephine is, ill will, a desire to injure someone else. You see why Paul says you have to get rid of it? Malice is a vice that lies below the radar and rages subconsciously. You no longer desire to fight fear. Instead, you, you feel the urge to fight dirty. The old man pops up in you. You hit where it hurts. You throw the person under a bus with your words. Just mean-spirited. Just cruel and unusual punishment. Malice says, I'm going to make you pay for what you've done to me. When Cain turned, his anger turned to Malice, he rose up and killed his brother Abel. Elsewhere, Paul says, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, and slandering, along with every form of malice. When we refuse to address our anger over past hurt, not only will it lead to wrath and malice, but it naturally leads to the sins of the tongue, such as slander, filthy language. Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Slander. That is also where we get the word blasphemy. Slander means to ver- verbally abuse someone else, wounding someone else's reputation by evil reports. It is speaking ill will of another person. It is trashing and assassinating that individual's character. You might even use social media platforms to invalidate and even demonize the person who's offended you. That old self rises up within you And you have one thing you have to do. You have to ruthlessly kill it. Not only do these sins, these sexual sins and social sins of the flesh manifest themselves in slander, but they also manifest themselves in filthy language, foul speaking, low and obscene talk. See, most of these sins previously mentioned are often manifesting themselves in the way that we talk. Obscene talk is dirty talk, is profanity. And the scripture says that the power of life and death is in the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29 says, Paul says, Let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth, but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear it. I'm learning personally the art of how to affirm other people. I think it's so critical as believers that we learn how to affirm others with our words, build them up, exhort them, instead of trashing their character. Paul is saying in many ways, he's exhorting us as believers to take out the trash, take out the garbage, treasures in. But how do we do that? We have to kill our fleshy urges. How do we do it? Let me just give you some final points here. First of all, understand that the indicative always comes before the imperative. What did you say? just say? The indicative always comes before the imperative? Okay, brother, speak English right now. I am speaking English. If you're going to gain any level of victory over your enemy within, you have to do away with the old self. You have to understand that what the therefore in this text is therefore in verse 5. It says, put to death, therefore. That therefore actually goes back to verses 1 through 4. The indicative, your state that is in Christ, what God has done for us in Christ. You see, the imperative 
is what we must do as a result of what God has done for us in Christ. In other words, you really can't obey this command or imperative to mortify your fleshly desires unless you understand the indicative of the verses before. You have been raised up in union with Christ. Because if we don't understand that dynamic, that the indicative always comes before the imperative, we will fall into self-righteous legalism or a works-based salvation. Our duty always comes before our identity. I'm sorry, our identity always comes before our duty in Christ. There are commands that we ought to follow, but those commands follow sound doctrine of who we are in Christ. The indicative mandates the imperative and not the other way around. Paul says, therefore, as you have received the Lord Jesus Christ, the indicative, so walk in him rooted and built up, the imperative. As we meditate on the majesty of Christ, we operate in his strength and are powered by to actually vecros, to put to death our sins. Our enjoyment of Christ empowers us. Our enjoyment of Christ empowers efforts to ruthlessly deal with our sins. Our pleasure in God is power for purity. Secondly, the most effective way to address our flesh is by having our minds captivated by the beauty of Christ and all that he offers us. Yielding to fleshly urges is overcome by seeking those things above. Fixing our minds on things above leaves little room or mental energy for fleshly or earthly fantasies. The heart that is entranced by the risen Christ is not easily seduced or induced by the things that are on the earth. Our fleshly pleasures are weakened over time as we seek the superior pleasures that are in Christ above. Third, this is a conscious and deliberate choice on our part to seek Christ in mental practice. When we seek the glory and the beauty and the power and the splendor of the risen Christ, we reorientate our affections toward him. It guards our hearts toward Christ. And if we've been raised with Christ in the past, we are hidden in him in the present. We will be revealed with Christ in the future. Your whole life, my whole life is all wrapped up and tied up in Jesus. Because Christ is my life, I can no longer live like I'm independent of him. I belong to him in mind, heart, body, soul, and spirit. Getting rid of the old self is very practical. Yes, Jesus says, watch and pray so that you don't enter into temptation. Your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. Yes, watch over your heart. Guard your heart, for out of it flows the issues of life. Yes, we get that. Keeping in step with the spirit of God so that we can overcome the flesh. Feast on God's word and obey it. Be sober-minded and vigilant because the adversary walks around like a roaring lion, seeking someone whom he may devour. Daily reckon your old self as dead, no longer in charge of your life. And get that. But most of all, pray for God's Spirit to captivate your mind daily so that it returns to Christ daily. Let Christ redirect your affections toward him because he alone satisfies us completely. Turn your eyes away from self. Be done with the old nature Paul says to us, 
Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And all the things of earth will grow strangely dim in light of his glory and grace. Father, we thank you, Lord God, for your word. We know that it is a tough pill to swallow, and yet it is the gospel. We thank you for this liberating power. Direct our eyes toward you, the author and finisher of our faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Mike, thank you. Sorry, we're, we're closing in the benediction now. Let me close with this benediction. Can I have everyone just stand to your feet? I just want to close with this benediction. If God has given you, if God has spoken to you directly with this message, I want to tell you right now that there's grace for you. And that God can separate your sins from you as far as the east is from the west. Froze it in the sea of forgetfulness right now today. That if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. The old man could be a, a person of the past. Your flesh could be a thing of the past right now today. Restoration can be for your soul right now if you don't know Christ or if you know him and you need to be restored to him. Let me close with these words from 1 John which are very powerful, and I believe that I just want to close as a benediction with these particular words. Let these words wash over your soul. Beloved, what kind of love have the Father given to us that we should be called the children of God? And that is what we shall be called, the children of God. And the reason why the world does not know us is that it does not know him. Beloved, we are now God's children. And what we will be has not yet been revealed. But we know that when he appears, when Jesus appears, we shall be like him. Because we will see him as he is. We will be, we will, wait a minute, we will see him. We will become just like him, for we will see him as he is. For everyone who has this hope purifies himself even as he is pure. Amen. Go in peace. Amen. Amen. Don't, please stay in fellowship and greet someone.